So last week I had a pretty unsettling moment. Uh, I was coaching my son's sixth grade basketball team, practice wrapped up, and we handed out the boys their jerseys. And I was just looking at the numbers that the boys had, you know, had been given. Uh, I think numbers are important. If you've played sports, you know how important your number is. And so I was looking at the numbers they'd been given, and one boy on the team had the number 23. Now, does anyone know a famous basketball player that had the number 23? Yes, thank you. Michael Jordan. And so I just casually said to the boys on my son's team, all right, someone has 23 Michael Jordan's number. And they all looked at me and said, oh, really? That's Michael Jordan's number? Parents, we have to do better. (laughs) And I speak to myself because my son also is one of those boys that didn't know it was his number. So we had a talk in the car about Michael Jordan. But that brings me to a Michael Jordan story that I heard recently that I want to start the message with today. March 28th, 1990, number 23, Michael Jordan, and the Chicago Bulls were playing in Cleveland against the Cleveland Cavaliers. Now, Chicago and Cleveland had had some bad blood in the previous years. They didn't really like each other. And so right at the beginning of the game, Michael Jordan was fouled by a Cleveland Cavalier in a very hard way. And it's said that Jordan took offense to that. And he began to put on what could be arguably said his most legendary game. At the end of the game, the Bulls won the game in overtime, 117 to 113. But at the end of the game, Michael Jordan had scored not 40 points, not 50 points, not 60 points, but 69 points. Remember, this is in the 90s when they actually played defense in the NBA. And of course, reporters went to the locker room and they were all swarming around Jordan, talking to him about his legendary game. And there was one reporter that couldn't make his way to Michael Jordan. There was too many people around him. And so he looked around the Bulls locker room and he saw a rookie on the team by the name of Stacey King. Now that night, Stacey King had played 17 minutes. He had attempted two shots, missed them both, and then been fouled attempting another shot. So he went to the free throw line and he made one of two free throws, finishing the night with one point. 17 minutes, one point. And so the reporter went over to Stacey King and he asked him, hey, like, what was it like? There's Stacey King and Michael Jordan. He asked him, what was it like as a rookie to be on the floor with Michael Jordan and watch Michael Jordan have an epic night where he scores 69 points? And Stacey King thought about it for a minute and he said, well, I'm going to remember this night for the rest of my life as the night when Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. It's amazing when you're on a great team. It's a good feeling. You ever been a part of a great team? Maybe in the sports world, but maybe in the business world. Maybe a part of a community group. Everyone worked together. There was synergy. There was energy. Maybe there were some people that, you know, pulled a little more weight than others, but everyone was working together. And you could just sense that you were accomplishing something. Or... Have you ever been part of a bad team? No one got along. There was division. There was fighting. There was talking behind each other's backs. There was tension. You wanted everything in you, just wanted you to get away, get out of that group or that team. I think there's something in us as human beings that desire to be a part of a great team. 
think there's something in us that, that wants to be a part of something great that's bigger than ourselves, to work with others, to accomplish something great. And I, and I think that was placed there by God. Because God's design for you and for me is always that we would be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And we call it the body of Christ. We're going to come back to that thought. We are in our last week of our Run the Race series. If you've been following along the past few weeks, we've covered some ground. Just to remind you of where we've been for the past four weeks, we've looked at different themes. We started with this idea that Apostle Paul says we are all on a race and we are to run our race to win. In other words, every day you wake up, you have this opportunity and this invitation to live your life intentionally, bringing down the kingdom of God. That as followers of Jesus, we're not here on earth to just simply hang out, die, and go to heaven, but that our lives here have meaning and purpose that connects with something greater. And then week two, we talked about if we're going to live our lives well, if we're going to run our race well, it's going to require us to love as Jesus loves, which means we're going to have to love difficult people. We have to love our enemies, love those that are difficult to love. Week three, Pastor Mike talked about how as we run our race, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus and get rid of the things that are hindering us, that are holding us back from living life well. And then last week, Maddie did such a great job reminding us that as we run our race, we're not running to God and we're not running to earn anything from God, but rather we are running with God. God is with us. And over the past few weeks, as I was praying about how to wrap this series up, I had a couple different ideas, but I kept, I kept being drawn to this idea. I felt like God was asking me to come back to, to the idea that I just mentioned, the idea that we are part of something greater than ourselves, the body of Christ. And I love, as much as I love the running analogy that we've used this whole series, because I'm a runner and I, I love it, I, I think a danger of the running analogy is, I think for most of us, when we think of running, we think of an individual sport. But as we run our race, we are not running as individuals, we are running as a part of a team. God's plan has always been that we will work together to accomplish his mission because a good team can always accomplish more than good individuals. Because the team needs us and we need the team. So the question today that I want us to wrestle with is how's your teamwork? On the race of life, how's your teamwork? Are you living your life as an individual? Just doing your best to serve God by yourself? Or are you aware that you are connected to something bigger than yourself? Are you aware that you are a part of the body of Christ and you are working with a team? And what would it look like, regardless of where you feel you fall on that spectrum, to be intentional this week to increase your awareness that you are part of the body of Christ and increase the opportunities to serve in the body of Christ as an active teammate. So that's what I want to talk about today. And I want to start with John 17. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It'll be on the screens. In John 17, we read one of Jesus' last recorded prayers before he dies, is crucified, and rises again. And it's interesting what Jesus is concerned about, what he cares about in this prayer. So John 17, starting in verse 11. Jesus says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, speaking of his disciples, so that they may be one as we are one. 
While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. By that name you gave me, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. So I want to stop there for a minute. So Jesus prays for protection for his disciples. And I think it's easy if you're just reading this quickly and not really paying attention to miss what Jesus is actually praying for. Because when I think of the word protection, I immediately think physical safety. Jesus is praying that they are going to be protected, that they'll be physically safe. But that is not at all what Jesus is praying for here. And, and if it is what Jesus is praying for, his prayer epically fails. Because if you follow the disciples' lives, right? There's 12 disciples. One of them, Judas, portrays Jesus. Now we're down to 11. And if you follow their lives after Jesus dies, rises again, and ascends to heaven, they are tortured, they are beat, they are thrown in prison, and eventually 10 of the 11 will be killed for their belief that Jesus died and rose again. But Jesus isn't praying for their physical safety. He says, protect them so that they may be one. Not that they may live forever, but so that they may be one. What what Jesus is praying for here is that God would protect them from turning on each other. Jesus isn't praying that God would protect them from the outside world killing them. Jesus is praying that God would protect them from killing each other. Because if you've ever been a part of a group, you know that there is danger from outside forces, but there's also danger inside the group. And Jesus is praying that that group that he has assembled will stay united and together because, because Jesus understands that the Roman Empire isn't going to have to tear down his group and destroy their message if they aren't united If they begin to bicker and turn on each other, Jesus' message will die with them on its own. He continues on. He says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them in the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Now, there's a lot going on here, but I want to point out a couple things. First off, Jesus says they may ha- so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Why is Jesus concerned about joy in a prayer about unity? Because it's a lot easier to get along with people that are joyful. If you've ever walked into a room or been with a group and there's just everyone's joyful, it's a lot easier to work together. But if you've ever walked into a room and everyone's tense and angry and on edge, you want to find the exit as fast as you can. And so in a prayer about unity, Jesus says, I pray they'd be full of joy. Why? Because joy helps with unity. Jesus says, protect them from the evil one. Now, again, is he praying for their physical safety? I don't think so. He's, he's praying that they would withstand the devil's schemes. And in this instance, the devil's scheme is not to kill them. The devil's scheme is to destroy their message. Because here's what, the, here's what I think the devil understands. You can kill someone, and that can only strengthen their message. And that's what we see in the early church. The more that the Roman Empire persecuted Christians, the more that the early church exploded. Because people looked at Christians and they were like, if they're willing to go to their deaths, claiming that some guy died and rose again, which just sounds crazy, if they're willing to go to their deaths for it, there must be something going on here that I want to check out. 
And so the early church grew despite intense persecution. And as you look through history, when you study history, the, the times that the church has grown the most are the times when the church has been the most persecuted. Even right now, if you go around the world into countries where it is illegal to be a Christian, you will find the church in secret exploding and growing exponentially. And vice versa, if you look at histories in the world when the church seemed to struggle, when the outside world wanted nothing to do with the church, when the church wasn't thriving, what you'll find is not times when the church was persecuted, but times when the church wasn't persecuted and the church began to divide and turn against itself. And the outside world looked at the church with all its bickering and dividing. And the outside world said, if you people can't get along, why would I join you? And so Jesus prays this beautiful prayer, and he's not concerned with their physical safety. He's concerned with their unity. Because he knows if his message is going to make it out of the first century, it's, he's not worried about persecution. He's worried about division. Jesus continues on, and he begins to pray for you and for me. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's talking about us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus prays for future disciples. He's praying for you and for me. And his, his concern, his care, is that we will stay united. In fact, he says, the way that the outside world is going to know that there is a God and that God sent someone into the world and that someone was Jesus and that someone died and rose again, the way the world is going to actually take that message seriously is not through theology, it's not through clever social media quotes, it's going to be when the church gets along. When the church works together. When the church joyfully pursues the mission of bringing the good news to the world, that is when the outside world will take notice and take the church seriously. And what do we see in the book of Acts? Jesus dies, he rises again, he ascends to heaven, and you have this unique, weird, eclectic group of people that have been brought together. You have women and men in a society that is male-dominated. You have rich and you have poor. You have different political beliefs. You have diff different social economic uh, classes. You have uh, different races all together. And one look at that group would be enough to go, that group will never make it. They will turn on each other. They'll be, they'll be gone before the end of the first century. And yet that group of very different people with d different worldviews prevailed. So much so that thousands of years later, halfway across the world, we're here today. And one of the big reasons why they prevailed is found in Acts 2, 42 through 47. Luke writes, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
This group of people joyfully worked together. And because they were united through the power of the Holy Spirit, they changed the world. So fast forward to 2023 and how are we doing? And for the church to improve, to work together, is going to require individual followers of Jesus strategically living their lives each day with an awareness that the Christian life is bigger than just their life. That they're a part of something bigger. And I'm going to give you two practical areas to evaluate your life in the coming week. I'm sure there's a lot of things that could be said here, but I want to just give you two, two areas to evaluate your life and ask yourself, is there room for improvement in the coming week to live as Jesus intended me to live as a part of the body of Christ? So first thing, and I'm going to use the team analogy here for both these points. So number one, great teammates encourage each other. Great teammates encourage each other. First Thessalonians 5, 10 through 11, Paul writing the church in Thessalonica says he, speaking of Jesus, died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live, and here comes that word, together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and he says, hey, Jesus died for you so you can live for him. Oh, but there's this word. In the middle of that sentence, not just live for him, but live for him together as a part of something bigger than yourself. And since you're living for him together, why don't you encourage each other and build each other up? Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. The writer of Hebrew writes, and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spur each other on towards love and good deeds, and we're going to encourage one another together. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, we're going to get together, we're going to critique, judge, and criticize each other to death. Now, there is a place for criticism in the body of Christ. We see criticism frequently and critiques frequently in Paul's letters. But here's what's important. Every time that we see criticism in Paul's letters to the churches, his criticism is to bring them back to unity. His criticism is to bring them back to health. Paul is not interested in destroying or hurting the church. Paul is interested in preserving the church and bringing the church back to health. And from where where I stand in 2023, as I look at the American church, my observation is the American church is full of judgment and criticism and very low on encouragement. And both need to exist in a healthy church. We all need encouragement, and we all have an opportunity to be encouragers in the body of Christ. If you've ever run a marathon, uh, you may have noticed these, these runners that hold signs the entire time they run, which seems a bit odd. Um, there's these runners that'll hold signs, and it'll have a, a pace, like a time per mile that they're running, and then it'll have a total time that they're running. And these individuals are volunteers, and they're called pacers. And their whole job as a pacer, they volunteer to run the marathon at a certain pace so that if there are people that are looking to run that pace, instead of having to rely on a GPS or a, a phone, that they can simply run with the pacer and the pacer will ensure that they run at the right pace and they finish at the right time. Well, a couple of years ago, I was running a very, uh, in a small marathon in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, and there were still pacers for this marathon. 
And so I found the pacer that was running at the time that I was hoping to run, and I stuck with him. And uh, about halfway through the marathon, it was such a small marathon that everyone else around us had either run faster or slower, and it was just me and the pacer. And uh, normally, I don't like to talk to people when I'm running. I like to stay focused, but like it's literally just me and him like running in the middle of the country. And so I struck up a conversation with him because I felt bad. I mean, at this point, he's basically running just to pace me. And uh, such a nice guy. And we just started talking about running and life. And towards the end of the marathon, he could tell that I was struggling because I was trying to run my personal record. (coughs) He could tell I was struggling. And he just started to encourage me. This guy I'd never met before in my life is running 26 miles. And all he's doing in that, the only reason he's running at this point is to encourage me. And I think about that, (coughs) excuse me, I think about that as it relates to the body of Christ. As you go through this week, there are going to be people that need you to be their pacer. There are going to be people that need you to come alongside them and encourage them and say, I'm, I'm with you in this season of life. There are going to be people in your life that, that Christmas is going to be a difficult season for them for a variety of reasons. And they need you to be their pacer, to step into their life and say, I'm going to, I'm going to walk this season, I'm going to run this season with you, and I'm going to encourage you. There are going to be people in your life in this coming month, two months, that are going to need you to be their pacer? What would it look like to show up in their lives and be the encourager that they need? Leadership expert John Maxwell once said that leadership is 51% encouragement. If you want to be a great leader at work, be a good encourager. If you want to be a great leader at your home, be a good encourager. You want to be a great leader at school? Be a good encourager. You want to be a great leader in the community? Be a good encourager. Is there a place for critique and criticism in leadership? Absolutely. But don't ever forget that great leaders encourage more than they critique. So what would it look like this week to be a better encourager? To look for opportunities around you to encourage the people that God places in your path. To spur the people around you on towards love and good deeds. Not just be focused on your race and your life, but to look around at those that need you to be a pacer for them. And secondly, not only are great teammates encouragers, but great teammates are team-focused. Great teammates understand that it's not just about them, that there's a bigger picture, and they are aware of how the bigger picture is playing out, and they're aware of how they can help, what their role is. On October 6, 2013, quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, Tony Romo, put up video game numbers. He finished the day 25 of 36 for 506 yards, passing, and five touchdowns. Dallas scored 48 points. After the game, Jerry Jones, the Cowboys owner, said it was the best game that Tony Romo ever played. Jason Garrett, the Cowboys head coach at the time, said Tony Romo was brilliant that day. When Tony Romo was asked about the game, he said he was 
disappointed. Why did he say he was disappointed? Well, because the Dallas Cowboys lost 48 to 51 that day to my Denver Broncos. It makes sense that Tony Romo would be disappointed when you, when you hear the big picture. In fact, it would have been odd if Tony Romo had gone up to that platform after the game and been like, I feel great. Uh, I did awesome. Five touchdowns. Did you see that? Like, man, I'm, I'm feeling great. I did great. Now, my team, I don't know what their problem is. Like, the defense needs to go. They, they're horrible. Like, we should get rid of all of them. Like, I kind of figured we were going to lose based on our defense, right? Like, it would have been crazy if Tony Romo had gotten up on the platform and gloated about his success. And yet I wonder how often in the body of Christ do we celebrate our own personal achievements following Christ and just ignore or disparage the body of Christ around us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, He's writing about how the body of Christ is made up of many individuals and we each have our own unique gifts and talents and it's when we work together that the body of Christ is at its best. But then he says in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 26, he says, if one part of the body of Christ suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each of you is a part of it. Paul says, let's be real clear that we, as followers of Jesus, as we follow Jesus, are a part of something bigger, and we are to be aware of how the people around us in the body of Christ are doing. And if someone suffers, we are to be aware of that, and we are to suffer with them. We are to grieve with them. We're to mourn with them. We're to enter into their sorrow with them. And if somebody succeeds, if somebody, if somebody celebrates, that we are to enter into that with them. That it's not just about us and our own individual accomplishments and how, how good a Christian we are. It is about a bigger picture called the body of Christ. It's about the team. So friends, how are we doing at not only running our individual race, but being aware of the bigger picture? The body of Christ around us and how we can enter into not only encouraging the people around us, but also caring for them. Mourning with those who mourn, celebrating with those who celebrate, being aware of a larger team that is at work. June 2nd, 2012, at the Ohio Division Three state track meet, Megan Vogel won the 1600 meter race. She became a state champion. But she was also signed up and had qualified for the 3200 meter race later that day. By the time of the 3,200-meter uh, race, uh, Megan was exhausted. Emotionally, she was just done. She, she, the emotions of winning the 1,600 had, had, had taken a lot out of her. And so she quickly found herself in last place of the 3,200. And by the time she turned the last corner of the 3,200 race, she was in dead last, and uh, she saw an opening. The girl in front of her fell down and was slow to get up. And so Megan had an opportunity to fly by her and at least not finish last. But then this happened. She was in first with 34 and Versailles at 33. So I don't know if they hadn't, if they hadn't uh, added the long jump in yet or a great display of sportsmanship Look at here. This. I know both these runners are just worn out. What a great display, as Joe said. 
Arden McMath cramping up in the legs very obviously has gone to the track a couple times and she's going to get helped across to finish a standing ovation here in Columbus. And everyone on the whole, in the whole place is on their feet. That was a tremendous display of sportsmanship. It's a really... So Megan Vogel goes around that last corner and has an opportunity to pass up Arden McMath. She's not her teammate. It's competition. But instead of flying by her, she stops. She picks Arden up. And if you notice carefully, not only does she help her to the finish line, but she actually pushes Arden in front of her so Arden finishes in front of Megan. Now, both girls should have been disqualified because Megan helped Arden, but race organizers decided not to disqualify either girl. And when Megan was asked why she did it after the race, she said, if you work to get to the state meet, you deserve to finish no matter who you are. I was going to make that happen for her no matter what. And I love that video because I think it's a beautiful reminder to us followers of Jesus in the room as we run our race. It's not about how fast we run and how good we are. It's about the people that we help along the way. It's about seeing the opportunities that you're going to have this week to help the people around you. To have an attitude that says, I don't care how inconvenient it is or how much it costs me when the Holy Spirit gives me an opportunity this week. I'm going to take it no matter what. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your goodness and your love. And Father, sometimes I don't quite understand why your plan involves human beings working together to accomplish your mission. But Father, I trust that in your wisdom that you know what's best. And so, Father, I pray for your church in this moment in time, 2023, here in America and around the world. And I pray that you would help your followers to live as you prayed, united with joy. That, Father, when the outside world looks at us, that they would not see anger and judgment and criticism and division, but they would see a joyful group working together to bring your kingdom down to earth. And may it start with us. In Jesus' name, amen.